A man approached me and told me the sky was green and gravity didn't exist to him. He believed it with the utmost sincerity, then took off his tinted glasses, was overwhelmed with the blue sky, and <laughs> fell down a flight of stairs. Yeah, such is the nature of belief and truth. Although he wholeheartedly believed what he believed and perceived it to be truth, did it actually alter the truth? Did it change reality? Did his ardent opinion and sincere acceptance of a non-existent gravitational force prevent him from falling? Can there really be your truth and my truth? What happens when our truths are contradictory? Is truth pliable? Well, I guess it all depends on what truth is. Can it really be this postmodernistic, relativistic, non-reality-based ism so many incorrectly wish it to be? Oh, if it is, then you couldn't actually understand that sentence. I'm just saying. Perhaps the definition has been blurred a bit and needs to be brought back into focus. The dictionary says truth is that which is in accordance with fact and reality. So truth is what is. It's what's real. The kind of truth Aristotle and Jesus spoke of. Now, here you go. Let's say somebody tells you they saw Millie Buggins inside an elevator, and someone else told you that at the exact same time, in the exact same relationship, they saw the exact same Millie Buggins, and he was completely outside of the elevator. Can both be true? Something is either true or it's not, right? It doesn't matter where you're from or your life experiences. It doesn't change the facts because truth isn't relative or based on your perception. If it were, then it would be limited to the speaker's point of view, which would mean truth is different from person to person. Therefore, it would only be binding or relevant to the person or group of persons who perceive it that way. So then a 10-ton bag of bricks could fall on one person and squash them, and the same bag of bricks could fall on another person and it would just bounce off. You see, it all depends on how they perceive truth. bag of bricks, in this case, is relative to either a real bag of bricks or a bouncing ball. You pick. Next example. Okay, let's say you ask Jimmy here where the nearest hospital is. Do you want a real answer or whatever Jimmy's relative answer might be? Huh, I bet you want the real one. Next one. Big Louie. Okay, that guy right there. He accuses you of theft, but you didn't do it. Are you going to defend the truth or just tell the judge nobody can really know what truth is as they put you in very real handcuffs and they walk you to a very real prison? Takes me to John chapter 18 where Jesus tells Pilate he came to testify to the truth and that everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. Nothing relative there. There are those on the side of truth and those who aren't. Jesus repeatedly said, I tell you the truth, to open his statements because reality of the what is kind is what we need to live our lives by and what we expect others around us to live theirs by. Truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's either true or it's not. Makes you think, doesn't it? We are in the middle of a uh, study on just spiritual warfare. And, and we've been looking at the truth and what is the truth. And, and in our world today, how we've come to this understanding, whatever is true for you is true for you, but not necessarily true for me. And I believe this is one of the greatest attacks on Christianity today that many believers don't know what, first of all, what they believe, and then also, is there an absolute truth that we must live our lives by? And what I'm going to do today, like I did last week, I'm just going to break it down for you and show you where we are today and how we can defend ourselves, not only individuals, but as parents and our children, against what's being taught in our world today so that we can stand firm in the truth. Let me just say this as we start off. What's being attacked today is the truth of who Jesus Christ is, period. That's what, it, if you boil everything down, that's what it boils down to. Jesus either is God or he isn't. And we've discussed this, that for a person to make the claims that Jesus made in his life 
to make the claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by him. These are the claims that Christ, let's say, these are the claims that Jesus has made, not me. This isn't our church. This isn't man-made claims. These are the claims that Jesus made. And if Jesus made these claims, then he's either a complete, because we have to get to the point of absolute truth. He either is the truth or he isn't. And so if he's made these claims, then C.S. Lewis said either he's a complete liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. So we have to discover these claims and either accept them or not accept them. But what's happened in our world today is all these philosophies have come in to whittle away at what absolute truth is so it depends on you and how you view it, not necessarily on how God sees truth and how we're to submit to a holy God. Let's pray and let's finish, because that's it right there, okay? No. Um, so let's, I want to dig into this, and, and, and the, the writers of the New Testament, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave warning to the church even some 2,000 years ago that these things, that these things were going to happen, that, that we do live in a spiritual world, that we fight against the philosophies of the world that try to set itself up against the person and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this has been the core scriptures of our messages over the last couple of weeks. And, and, and let's read it again in Ephesians 6, 11, 12. I have notes for you this week and your bulletins for all you note people. I got a, somebody got me in a headlock last week and said, if you don't give me notes, I'm going to hurt you. So you have notes this week, okay? Sorry, Ruth, I'll never do that again. Okay, so here we go. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. It says, put on, what does Paul say? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers. These are the things that we're truly wrestling against over the present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil and the heavenly places. This is what we are, are, are wrestling against. Not flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers, authorities, uh, against these philosophies in our world. It's what's going on behind the curtain. It's the things that you may not necessarily see that slowly work its way into our lives. It's what's being taught in the classroom. It's what's being said on, on secular media, things you may not even think about, but over time they begin to seep into our mind till we begin to believe these things. But when we set them up against the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, they're exposed for what they truly are. Now, do you realize, how many of you have ever been to Disney World? Okay, a lot of you have been to Disney World. Do you realize that there's a whole nother world behind Disney World? Right? There's a whole, and actually, in fact, you can take a tour of what goes behind this. That would be the cool thing to go to Disney World and see what actually goes on behind the scenes of Disney World. There's actually all these underground tunnels, secret places that the cast members can go through. Uh, Mickey's house is there. Uh, Mickey and Minnie's house is there where they live. Okay, I'm just teasing, okay? I'm just teasing, okay? Um, Disney does this on purpose because they want you to experience the real thing as much as possible. They, they want you, when you come in, they want you to make you feel like you're actually going in to a completely different world. They don't want you to see what's going on 
behind the scenes. They don't want to take away from that, from that image, from, from the experience of going into a, a, a different place. And, and we cannot assume that what we see is all that there is. There's a hidden agenda the enemy wants us to succumb to. And Paul warns us to stand firm against these schemes. And when we, we study this word scheme, it's the Greek word methodia, and it's where we get our word, our English word methods or strategies. It's, a, it's actually, if you really understand the word there, it's actually following a or pursuing a orderly or technical procedure. For all you geeks out there, it's a mathematical procedure. Some of you start, just started getting excited. Pastor, give me that math. You know, that's why I did terrible in math. You miss one element of the procedure, of the mathematical formula, you are lost forever. And that's why I just cried in trigonometry every day. I just cried in that class because it was just torture. But that's what this word means. It's, it's a perfectly calculated strategy that Satan knows exactly what he's doing. The goal is very simple. And Jesus even talked about this as he described the characteristics of Satan. He says, he's the father of all what? Lies. He comes against the truth. His desire for you is to believe that there is no absolute truth. That's the core of what, because if you don't believe in truth or absolute truth, it will turn you away from trying to know the truth or a creator who encompasses all truth. So the goal is very simple. Jesus understood this. Paul understood this. And we as followers of Christ need to understand this. So we need to expose the lie so that we may be firm and stand firm in the truth of Jesus Christ. So the goal is very simple here. In 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, Peter describes it very well of, of how the a believer of Christ is to act and how we are to stand firm against the methodia or the schemes of the enemy. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Peter says, resist him doing what? How do you resist him? By just rebuking him and say, I rebuke you, say, no. How do we resist the devil? By standing firm in your faith. He says, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. So the way we stand firm is by knowing the truth. People, let's grow up a little bit here, okay? Some of you are raised in tradition where you just say, when I feel they attack them, you just rebuke them and you rebuke them and you bind them and you loose them and you rebuke them. And you, that's silliness, okay? That's just silliness. The way we resist the enemy's temptations is by turning to Christ who gives us the power to resist any temptation. If you think that your little words are gonna do anything to the enemy, he's laughing at you. The way you resist it is by standing firm in the truth of what you know. That greater is he that's within you than anything that's in the world. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave now lives in you. That there's no temptation that is so great that can ever overcome you. That God has not made a way of escape through his son, Jesus Christ. Are you with me, 830 crowd? All right, that's good stuff right there. 
So the way we resist him is by standing firm, by knowing what we know to be true, that we expose the lie for what it is and we say, I will not follow that. That's coming against the truth. The reason why we give in to the tactics of the enemy is because we don't know the truth. We've not studied. We've not proven ourselves in our faith. And so what Peter's saying here, you're going to prove yourself in your faith because you're going to be persecuted for your faith. So don't give up because your brothers all around the world are going through the exact same thing you're going through. So don't give up. Stand firm and realize that the enemy is trying to devour you. But stand firm in Christ Jesus because he cannot touch you. So how do we combat the evil tactics of the devil? Now notice the words that Paul uses here. He says our best defense against the devil is to be self-controlled and alert. Okay, this is where, listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where us as believers need to do something. This is where you are proactive in your walk with the Lord. This is where you say, okay, if I'm, a, if I'm a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, if, if, if I made a profession of faith and I've confessed my sins and Christ lives in me and God has filled me with his Holy Spirit and I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you need to be proactive in resisting the tactics of the enemy. And he gives us two things here. It's not flesh and blood. It's not how, many, how big your sword is, okay, it's, it's how big you know your word. That's your sword, the word of the Spirit, the word of God. That's, how, that's what you've got to know to, to defend yourself against the tactics of the enemy. So he gives us two things here. Let me break down these two words. He says, first of all, be, be self-controlled or use self-control. The, the Greek word there is nepho, which literally means to be sober. The word literally there means to be sober or to abstain from, from wine. In fact, the Vine's expository dictionary defines self-control as to be free from the influences of any intoxicants. Now, some of you, you, you may live this kind of lifestyle. You put a couple drinks in someone and they're the smartest person in the world, right? They're not thinking in their right mind. They're, they're impaired. They're, their thinking is impaired. And, and we know how drinking can impair our judgment immensely. Some of you out there don't even remember the 60s, okay? So you know. So the bottom line here is this. What Peter's saying, guard, guard your mind. Don't have a clouded mind. Have a sharp mind that you can make wise decisions. Base your decisions on the word of God. And is the decision I'm making in direct conflict with the word of God? That's how you are on your guard against the enemy. You're making wise decisions. You are sober minded instead of being intoxicated with alcohol you're intoxicated with the spirit of god so that you can be discerning you're reading god's word you're praying so that you will not be easy prey for the enemy that's something that you have to do you have to be proactive in your walk with jesus christ so he uses another word there to be alert and, and peter uses this word alert to basically mean to be watchful or literally keep awake. Don't let your guard down. Be watchful. I can remember when I took a group of teenagers to the Bahamas. We took like a 60-foot uh, uh, 
sailboat into small islands in the Bahamas and we worked with kids and did some construction. It was really cool. And uh, I remember the, the, uh, the captain said, Barton, I got to talk to you alone as the leader. And the captain, before he was a Christian, was a drug runner in the Bahamas. And, and he was a pastor's kid. His dad was a pastor. <laughs> kind of went a little wayward there, I guess. Uh, and he was a drug runner, and, and I was hoping he was still saved. No, he was. He, he loved Jesus, repented. Really great guy. Did these missions trips with groups. And he says, Barton, I've got to talk to you alone a little bit. He goes, here's something that's really important as we sail to these smaller islands. There is a lot of drug running that goes on uh, from island island. He goes, I know most of them but I do have weaponry on board the boat. Something goes down. I'm like, what kind of trip am I taking here? He goes, nothing's going to happen. Everything's going to be fine. I just want to warn you. We've got to be on our guard all the time. So he goes, this is what I want you to, to tell your kids. Don't get them alarmed. But he said, just say this. Because every single one of us had 45-minute shifts to steer the boat. We went all through the night to get to the different islands that we could get to. So we had to, you know, we had to sail through the night all night long. So every, we had to wake everybody up, and they're on these 45-minute shifts and so on and so forth. And so he told me, he goes, if you see any boat approaching our boat, wake me up immediately if I'm sleeping. And he goes, what you tell your kids, if someone's coming, don't alarm, just say, just wake me up. So tell your kids as they're steering the boat, if you see another boat approaching our boat, make sure that you wake me up. And what was really interesting, you could see the, the Coast Guard jets flying like, like, it was probably like 200 feet over the water, just looking for drugs being, ch- and it was just, these jets would just fly off them. And I go, wow, that was like, he goes, they're looking for boats. They're looking for drug runners in our waters. And so it was just, it was crazy. It got a little, the, the craziest thing is when we saw a water spout that we're going right at the, he goes, that's what you got to worry about. And I'm like, what have I done? We never went on another one of those trips. But anyways, you had to be alert. And so I, I noticed the captain never let his guard down. He knew the tactics of the enemy and he was wise and discerning and wanted to keep us protective. Some of you that are or, or were in law enforcement, I always notice that when you go to a restaurant, you always face the door just in case something goes down. You're always familiar with your surroundings. Any of you that have flown before, notice when you get on the plane, they say the closest exit may be where? Behind you. Because most people, when they're facing forward, the exit could be 15 rows in front of you and all of a sudden something happens and you panic, right? And you start going forward when in fact the exit could be right behind you. Okay, they do this for your safety to be wise and understanding just in case there's an emergency. And so what what Peter is saying is don't let your guard down. Be prepared for temptation. Watch your temperament. Know when you are weak. Know what your weaknesses are. Don't be naive. The moment you think you've got something licked, watch out. Don't think more of yourself than you should. Be sober-minded means to walk in humility before the Lord. And so in order to remain steadfast in our walk with God, we need, we need these moral absolutes to guide us. We need to be wise to what Christ expects from us. So, so here's the scheme that I want to look at. Here's one of, I believe, the enemy's greatest schemes. And this is to blind the world to absolute truth that's found in the Word of God. In our world today, we have 
no idea where the moral line is. It, it's so muddy that we can't even see what the truth is. And, and I quoted Eckhart Tolle from this New Age guru who wrote this book, New Earth, that millions of people have bought and, and has been sold widely through Oprah and so on and so forth. This is what he writes. Tolle writes that the truth is inseparable from who you are. You are the truth. In fact, he distorts Jesus' famous statement by saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, by claiming what Jesus meant was that he was his own truth, just like we can be our own truth. Now, millions of people are reading that, and what they say to themselves is, I can be equal with Jesus. Because if Jesus had the truth in him, and I need to discover the truth within me, what we've done is we've, we've taken Jesus and his divinity and put it on the same level as you and I. Dangerous. That's what's, that's what's being told in our world today. And so what happens is you take away from the divinity of Christ, which makes us equal with him, right? Which means I don't need a savior, because if I'm equal with Christ, then I'm okay, and you're okay, and we're all okay. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, because I'm going to try to find the truth within myself. So what happens is the road from God is slow and steady. This road away from God is slow and set, steady. The enemy works by desensitizing us. He'll do, he'll do this very slowly. And when we open up the door, the devil just needs a, 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 just a crack. Cockroaches can fit through an opening one-sixteenth of an inch. That's all they need. I lived in South Carolina. Know it well. Our house could be clean. Any opening in your house, it's cold outside. Cockroach can fit. It's nasty. They, they call them palmetto bugs. Call it what it is. It's a cock nasty roach. Okay. Oh, it's a palmetto bug. No, it's nasty. It's a roach. And when you step on them, just, it's nasty, okay? So let, let me illustrate this, this slow ebbing away of, of any kind of absolute truth. Or let's even look at just kind of morality in our world today. I'm going to illustrate this by the slow progression of morality through television. It amazes me how television has transgressed over the years, even in my lifetime. How many of you remember when there was only three channels on TV? How many of you, oh boy, you guys are old like me. How, some of the kids are like, what, three channels? There's like 8,100 million channels. Um, how many of you remember when the, when the TV actually went off? Remember that? You just had those bars on there, you're right? And then they sang the national anthem, okay? So uh, it, it's, it's amazing how it's transgressed. Did you know that Barbara Eden, who played Jeannie on I Love Jeannie, they would not show her belly button on TV because they thought it was too risky? The Brady Bunch, having Mr. and Mrs. Brady in the same bed as husband and wife, was cutting edge at the time? Woohoo! Right? And, 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 and as, we, as we transgressed over the years before, most shows 30, 40 years ago wouldn't even show the bedroom or, or it would show, if they did, they would show the couple in separate beds with the nightstand between them. Wow, have we come a long way, baby, right? Slow, slow, slow progression. And this is what I want you to see, that we can get caught up in this spooky Hollywood type of Satan that's this red guy with a pitchfork, so much more than that. I, I want you to remember, he wants you 
to believe a lie, to begin to turn away from truth, to follow another belief system. Listen, the, Peter and the Apostle Paul are writing to Christians and they're warning them and Peter's warning them. So if we think that we're beyond this as believers, we need to wake up because it can happen to us just as easily as it can happen to anyone else in the world. Now, notice how each decade moved further and further away from what was moral and right to whatever goes for you. So the reason, let me give you the reason for the moral decay that, uh, decay that we see uh, our country in today. It's because we've not embraced absolute truth. Even amongst born-again Christians, as we discovered last week through Barner research, a very small percentage, in fact, it was 35% of those that were interviewed, born-again Christians, believed in absolute truth, 9% of teenagers believed an absolute truth that were claimed to be born-again Christians. And we saw this philosophy, this belief system that, that began to take hold uh, of our world 125 years ago from people like Friedrich Nietzsche, Soren Kierkegaard, Jean-Paul Sartre. They, they all taught and believed in existentialism. And this belief system started in Western Europe and then spread all over the world. And the basic teaching is this, is that truth is relative, meaning whatever you think is what you think, that there is no truth. You can't find it. Very depressing. And this seeped its way into the mainline churches of America today, hijacking our, parent, our grandparents and great-grandparents. And what began to happen is there was a shift there was a shift from thesis and antithesis thinking, which means there was right and wrong, heaven and hell, good, evil. There was this moral boundaries that said this is right. And, and it, it literally led, and, and even, even if you weren't a follower of Christ, there was this protection in our country that said abortion is wrong. We're going to put guardrails up around ourselves because these things are wrong. These things ought not be. And so whether or not you're a follower of Christ or not, these things ought not be. And all of a sudden, this thinking creeped its way in and said, well, there's no really right and wrong. We're going to discover what's moral and what's right. We're going to look in ourselves, just as Eckhart Tolle says, the truth's within you. Boy, has that messed us up today. And so what begins to happen is we begin to decide whether or not a life is valuable or not. And if you don't think that another holocaust of that magnitude could happen again, you better wake up. Easily, easily. And we see it right in our midst today through the 50 million babies that have been aborted already in America since Roe versus Way. So what happened is there's a shift from thesis and antithesis, right, wrong, to this continuum thinking, which is basically moral relativism, whatever you think is right, and we're going to decide what is moral and right. I, I caught this show on PBS. It, some of you may have watched this. It's the McLaughlin Group. And if you ever watch John McLaughlin? It drives me nuts the way he talks, but it was an interesting thing that he had. What do you think? What do you think? You know, it's just if you guys ever watched McLaughlin Group. It was interesting because I caught he had, he had an Islamic theologian and a pastor of a church 
in Washington, D.C., and the pastor did a great job. And they were talking about the similarities between Christianity and Islamic teaching. And there's something that was very interesting. What John was doing is he was trying to say, well, look at all the similarities that, 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 that Islamic teaches and Christianity, and what are the similarities? And what's interesting is, is they began to look at what they had in common. And, and, and the Muslims teach that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was born of a miraculous birth, that he did miracles and was from God, and even they believe in the resurrection, that God raised him up. Now, they don't teach in his crucifixion. And obviously that's the core, <laughs> besides the resurrection, that's the core for us because we know that he died on the cross for our sins, but that they do not teach. And John McLaughlin tried to get the two men to agree that intrinsically, don't you believe the same thing? Why can't we just join together and believe the same thing? But the problem is where the two faiths disagree is that the deity of Jesus Christ. They do not believe he was the son of God and was God. And that's the crux of everything we believe. Because you take away from the deity of Christ, then you take away from his death and you take away from his sinless life. And then he's just another man, right? And then not good enough or, or, or could not appease God's wrath and his holiness, which you and I all here then would still be sitting in our sins headed towards an eternal hell. So you must believe in the deity of Christ in order to realize that he atoned for our sins. Now, what's scary about this new age spirituality that we're seeing in our world today from the Tollies, the Wayne Dyers, the Oprahs, the Chopras, and all those that are spewing these books out, that there's many ways to God, is what they're saying is there is no absolute truth. What I discovered as I looked at this uh, McLaughlin report, John McLaughlin had these two, the pastor and the, the, the Muslim theologian, is at least the Muslim theologian and the pastor recognize that we cannot agree that someone has to be right and someone has to be wrong. Thank you, because he tried to get them to get into this new age spirituality that says, can't we all be right? Can't we all just get along? Isn't there many ways to God? It's, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, do you see how existentialism has worked its way into our society? Just believe whatever you want to believe about the truth, and you'll be okay. But that's not what Jesus told us. So at least this pastor said, no, this is where we part ways. Yes, we have things in our history that are the same, Abraham, so on and so forth. But we have to disagree about the person of Jesus Christ because if you disagree about that, it takes away from the whole foundation of what we believe in our salvation. Thank you. And, and, and the Muslim theologian agreed also. Here is what's sad. Let me tell you what's sad. The Muslim theologian believed more about Christ than many of our mainline churches do today. That they're whittling away at the inerrancy of Scripture. They're whittling away at the personhood of, of Jesus Christ. They're whittling away at, at the Bible as an inerrant word of God. And, and what's happened is in many of our mainline churches, they've dipped so far away from the absolute truth of the word of God that they're starting to make up what they believe is true. It's a sad state of events in our world today if we're not careful and stand up for what the truth is. So the spirituality of today is the belief that whatever you want and whatever you believe 
And as long as you're sincere about it, it's okay. So we live in a day of a new morality. Uh, David Noble, in in his book, Understanding the Times, said this, the so-called new morality is nothing but an excuse to use morality to do as one pleases. So no right and wrong, no truth to guide us. Truth is the result of this existentialism type philosophy. And so here's the problem with that type of thinking. We tend to base and we will base our morals on what we think is right. And there is a deadly result to that type of thinking. Francis Schaeffer makes a great point. If there is no absolute beyond man's idea, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. Man, did he nail that. Great thinker of our day. Francis Francis Schaeffer basically said, listen, if there's no absolute truth, then who's to judge who's right and who's wrong? You're all right. There's no right and wrong here. It's whatever you think. So who's the judge between all this? So we make up what we feel is good to us. So who's right? That's the question. At least the Muslim cleric and the pastor came to Oz by saying, somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong. Amen, I say. Thank you. So if I were to, if we're to leave this to decide for ourselves what's right, what's wrong, well, what if I just said, listen, let's, let's have a discussion on what a foot is. And we all know that's 12 inches. And somebody said, well, I think it's 11 inches and I think it's 13 inches. It would be chaotic, wouldn't it? How would you build a house? How would you build anything? We need a standard of measurement that everyone needs to follow or there is chaos. So what we've done is we've redefined our morals and thus we've lost our way. C.S. Lewis said this well in his book, Abolition of Man. He said, the human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color or indeed of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. And what he's saying is, we've basically created our own morals and what we live our lives by. So our world defines what is moral. We define moral by what society thinks is moral and everything in it. So what was wrong 20 years ago may not be wrong today. The bottom line is with this new spiritualism of today, it's not accountable for my sin. And I don't have to answer to a holy God. The person I answer to is who? Me. Because if the truth is found in me and the spark of the divine is within me, then the only person I have to answer to is me. And as followers of Christ, we must understand that an absolute moral order does exist. We need to secure our morality, and a God that is never changing, that is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Morality cannot be defined in what man thinks, but in what God thinks. And here's the bottom line, people. God cannot tolerate evil. God cannot tolerate immorality. 
Sin is the very thing that separates us from God. God does not set up rules just to make you do it or to make your life miserable. He does it because he knows that sin is the very thing that separates us from a holy God. And so if I can find the truth within myself, then that negates my pursuit to fall on my face before a holy God and say that, that, I, that I'm wrong, that Christ is perfect, that he is God, and he came to die for my sins. So this new spirituality in our world today basically is a cover to justify my own sin. So now I don't have to be accountable for my living situation, for all my problems. I don't have to be accountable for them. Because I don't, if I don't have to stand before a holy God and give an account for my sin, then the only person I have to account to is for myself. And who makes up the rules? Well, whoever wants to make up the rules. You see, God establishes the Ten Commandments for a reason. It was God's moral standard to show us how we are to relate to God and one another. Without them, how do we know that we've fallen short of a holy God? They were given to us to, to not, not to save us, but to guard us and to point us to a perfect Savior. And we've all broken God's law, and we all deserve death, the Bible says. Paul says it so well in Galatians 3.24, where he says, So then, the law was our guardian. I like that word. The law was our guardian. It was our protection until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What he's saying is the moral law of God could not save you. It could only magnify your sin and point to your sin. So it would point you, right? Because all of us would be instant fails if we tried to be perfect and fulfill all 613 laws, right? You break one, you break them all. We'd all be instant failures because we make mistakes every day. There's no way we could ever be perfect. So what the law did, it was our guardian pointing us to a perfect Savior who was perfect, who fulfilled everything in the law because he was God. And not only did that, but he took the curse of it upon himself for you and I. So that by faith in Christ, I could be found righteous before God. Somebody say amen. That's the good news. That's the gospel news. So we all have to get to the point to where we recognize that the law points to our guilt and how we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And we all know that if we were to justify, uh, we were to, to, you know, put our lives against the law, we were to juxtapose our lives against the law, we all know we've all stolen something. We all committed adultery in our hearts. Jesus says, even if you've committed a uh, looked at a woman lustfully, you committed adultery in your heart. Uh, we've all lied. Uh, every single one of us, we broke God's law and we are guilty. So the verdict is we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And I love Psalm 51. I think it's, 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 it's probably the most eloquent words that, that anyone could ever say before God in, in a repentant heart. The correct way to repent before a holy God. And, and this psalm was written after David was found out with this sin with Bathsheba. And I want to read it for you because I want God just to, it, it's got to start here, people. Listen, I can point at the world 
and all the evils that are going on in the world and how the world is lost. But the problem is it seeped its way into the church. And what disturbs me, if only 35% of born-again Christians believe in absolute truth, follow me here, follow me, follow me. If only 35% of born-again believers believe in absolute truth, and if only 9% of born-again teens believe in absolute truth, we're in a moral dilemma. Something is not clicking in the church. And what we need to do as parents and as individuals, we need to take inventory of our life. And we need to, to measure it against God's word. And we may need to say, what have I allowed in my life that I'm, I'm, I'm actually being an example to my kids of what I have allowed, that I've crossed the line. Is, is Christ glorified in my home? Is Christ glorified in, in my life? Have I sat down with my kids? Listen, I sat down with my boys at the age when I knew they needed the talking to about the birds and the bees, we sat down, we talked. Because I didn't want anyone else telling them a falsehood. I wanted them to know the truth before they heard it from anybody else, before any health educator, anybody else. I wanted them to hear the truth through God's word. That they knew this is God's standard for your life. God wants to protect you and save you until marriage. That anything outside the marriage bed is considered as sexual immoral before a holy God. I wanted them to know that from me, their dad, before they heard it from anybody else and where the line is and how far you can go because it's so blurred now and what's being taught in our schools and so on and so forth can send so many mixed messages to our young people. But they have to know. Here's God's absolute truth concerning these things for your life. Now, you're, they'll get older and they'll be big and they'll have to make their own decisions. But me as their father, I want them to know this is right and this is wrong. And, and it's not because God wants to take away any joy out of your life. It's because God wants to spare you for a great life, for a great marriage that's blessed by the Lord. And thank God for his grace. And all of us are sitting here, and you may be saying, well, Pastor, that water has long passed under the bridge. You know, maybe you've gone through divorce, maybe whatever, and all these things. Listen, what I love about Jesus Christ is that he's a redeeming God, that he restores us that he makes new creations out of us. That even in the mistakes that we've made in our past, God can restore us and make us new and cleanse us from all our wrong thinking and ungodliness. Amen? That, that, that's the good news. That's the hope. So some people think, well, I'm already damaged good, so what good is it to live that kind of lifestyle now? It's too late. No, it's not too late. It's not too late before the Lord that he can redeem you. And I'll be honest with you, I never thought I would see the day 
as a pastor that we would be arguing about some of these issues that are so black and white in the Word of God. In the church, no less. Not in the world. That's ignorance and they're blind to the truth. But even in the church, we're arguing about these things. So we need to protect ourselves. And listen to what David said in Psalm 51. I love this. And let's make this our prayer today. Let's say that God cleanse us. Cleanse our homes. That it would start with us. That we would be the spiritual leaders, that men, you would pray with your wives, with your children. That faith would start in the home. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. And I love this. The second part of verse 4, he says, So that you are proved right when you speak and are justified when you judge. Absolute truth against you and you alone. You are the judge, and I've sinned against ultimately who? God. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop that I might be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What a great prayer of cleansing and coming before the Lord and of a God who restores his people who have fallen from him. I want to finish with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died in Nazi prison camp in World War II. He wrote the book, Cost of Discipleship. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principle, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue but who is ready to sacrifice all this when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and in, and in exclusive allegiance to God, the responsible man, who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and call of God, where are these responsible people? That's my question today. Where are these responsible people?
It's got to start with us. God, do the cleansing. I am not here to beat you up, to let you to walk out of this place feeling guilty. As your pastor, I love you. And for some of you here today, there might need to be a change that needs to happen in your life. And it's okay to do inventory in our life to say, man, I have definitely gone off the deep end here. And you need to make a stand for what is right and what is wrong. Not to be self-righteous, not to be condemning to the world, not to look holier than thou, but to stand firm in the truth in love. And so God, have my moral values over the years, have they shifted away from what I know is right and I know is wrong? Have they shifted and I need to come back to you and I need to reconcile myself to you again, God, and I need you to cleanse me again? Listen, you... You know, there's a, there's a church for everybody out there. I'll be honest with you. There's a church for everybody. But I want to be a church that walks in truth. I, I want you to be a people that constantly look at your hearts and say, God, am I walking in that truth? Am I, am I walking according to your standards of what's right and wrong? And I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm talking about walking before a holy God and having God look at your heart and say, God, am I listening to you? Am I allowing your glory to be shown forth in my life? Am I sold out to you? Is there a fire in my belly for you? Lord, is there a fire in my belly to pray for people? Is there a fire in my belly to want to know you and to grow close to you? Listen, let God relight the fire in your heart. And listen, we battle every single day. And I know it's easy to allow the influences of the world just to keep closing itself in. But God, have you lit the fire in my heart to want to know you? And that's what David prayed. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me, but restore in me the joy of your salvation. Don't take it away, but restore it. Give me that joy again to serve you. And there's joy in the Lord when you're following his will. Amen? So I want to pray for you this morning. And this is what we're going to do this morning. We, I, I, we're going to have a little sacred assembly right here, people. Right at your seats. We're going to have just a little coming to Jesus time. And I want us just to seek the face of the Lord this morning. As we sing unto the Lord, if you want to come to the altars and just pray. You know, what I love about the significance of the altar in the Old Testament is 
as, as, as nothing crawled back out of the altar. It was dead. It was sacrificed unto the Lord. And maybe there's some of you here that just need to die to some things in your life and in your past. And you just need to leave it here today. So if you want to come up and just pray and just seek God's face as we just seek the Lord, I'm going to have you remain seated as we sing this song today so that you can just sing and pray and allow God to speak to your heart about things that he needs to speak to you about. Just make this between you and the Lord this morning as we go before him. So I invite you today to come into God's presence, whether it's at the altars at your seat. Let's just seek his face today. So let's just come before him. Lord, God, we just come before you now in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, every single one of us in this place, God, has, have disobeyed you in some way. But Lord, I just pray right now that you would just light the fire back in our souls again, God. That, Lord, it's easy to believe the philosophies of this world and to, to walk away from your standards, God, of what's right and wrong. And just to, it's so easy to believe a lie because it's always mixed with a little bit of truth. But Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would come back to your standards. That we would be like David and say, God, against you and only you have we sinned. And so, Lord, may we restructure our lives. May we restructure what we're allowing into our lives, God. May we restructure those things so that, Lord, we don't fall asleep, that we are alert and that we're awake. Lord, may you give us a new hunger for your word today, a new hunger to want to know you, a new hunger to grow deeper in our walk with you today, God. So I thank you for your people, God. I thank you for your patience today with us. I thank you that you're so loving and you're so caring. And so, Lord, as we just spend this time in prayer, God, just speak to us, Lord. We open up our hearts to you and we lay bare the things that need to be laid bare before you. And I thank you for your forgiveness. God, keep us protected as a body, as a church, as families, as individuals, marriages, God. Put your protection over them from the deceit and the schemes of the evil one. Protect us, God. Protect our children, our children that are, are wayward from you, God. We pray, God, that you would draw them back home to you, God, that you would protect them, and that, Lord, all the things that have been implemented into their hearts, God, they would come and it would be revealed of what the truth of Christ truly is, and they would come back to you just as the prodigal son did. So, Lord, be with our families, God. Protect them from any schemes of the enemy, we pray. And we thank you for your love today. In Jesus' wonderful name, in Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen, amen. So let's just seek the face of the Lord as we just sing this song to the Lord. If you want to come and pray, I invite you to do that, but let's just seek his face as we worship him this morning. God bless you. Amen.
That's our desire this morning, is to see your glory in our lives, God. And so, Lord, God, as we just leave your presence today, God, we pray that, God, we would just seek you. That we would be a people that would say, God, not my glory, but your glory be shown through my life. God, we would not allow the the world to impede our lives, to sidetrack us from the person of Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I just pray for every family here, every marriage, every individual, Lord, every teenager. Lord, that they would know you for who you are. And, Lord, we know that the truth is what sets us free to allow your presence and your glory to be be shown forth in our lives. And that's what I pray today, God. So, Lord, when every young person has to make a moral decision, Lord, I pray the power of the Holy Spirit would well up inside of them and say, no, I'm not going to choose that road because that doesn't glorify Christ. I pray for every parent that has to make a decision for their children that, Lord, they would say, no, that decision does not glorify Christ. I'm going to make a stand here, even though it's not a popular one, even though it might cause some, you know, just some problems with my child, Lord, but I know that's what's best for them because that's that's what you desire for them and I'm going to protect them, God. Lord, I pray for every marriage here today. Pray for every person here today. God, when we're tempted with the things of this world to look at things we shouldn't look at, Lord, that God, your Holy Spirit would give us strength to say, no, I'm not going to choose that because that doesn't glorify, that doesn't glorify Christ. And I'm, I'm a child of, of God now. I'm a child of Christ now. And so, Lord, just protect our hearts today that we would be a people that would walk according to your truth and your standards. Thank you for Jesus, who was perfect in every way, who took on our sin, that through faith and by God's grace, we can find the righteousness of God and we can be righteous before a holy God and cleansed of our sin. Thank you for the position that we have now in Christ Jesus, that we are now new creations. So we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for this time. I just pray a blessing over every person as we go in your strength now. In Jesus' wonderful name, in Jesus' wonderful name, we ask these things. And everybody said, amen. Let's give the Lord praise for his word today. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go in God's grace. Anyone needs prayer? Our prayer partners will be up front to pray with you. Anything you're going through, otherwise go in God's grace. Amen.